interest in the following audio recording produced by Chesterton House, a center for Christian studies at Cornell University. Support for Chesterton House comes entirely from listeners like you, and we invite you to help us continue making the recordings of past lectures available at no cost through a donation to the ministry. You can find additional resources and make a donation at www.chestertonhouse.org. This audio recording is copyrighted and unauthorized duplication is prohibited. All right, why don't we interact so that um, Cordell can have all his, answer, his questions answered before, before time's up. Yes, sir. I have a question sort of on like, um, like the role of how we are the image of God compared to like unbelievers. Yesterday you talked a lot about that we're all royal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then today you talked about how we like have the role of multiplying and taking dominion and things like that. Mm-hmm. And would you say that that would be true then uh, for everyone? Or, and if so, then what's the, what does it really mean when he says that we're the royal priest? That's great. Wonderful. Wonderful. Um, the question is basically, what's the difference between a non-Christian and a Christian in this thing called the image of God? Are they the image of God or are we the image of God? Are we both the image of God in some way? The, um, the evidence of the Bible uh, is basically that everybody is the image of God. Uh, Genesis chapter 9, you remember this after Noah's flood? God says to Noah that uh, he condemns murder and he says, you know, execution if somebody murders someone. But why does he condemn the murderer? Why does God condemn the murderer? Do you remember in Genesis 9, 6, I think it is? Yeah, but not, not for the human being, though. Why do you condemn the murderer? Because he's murdered the likeness of God. Yeah, explicitly. It says you, the murderer is to be condemned because he has murdered the likeness of God. That's not just when he kills Christians, okay? But when anyone kills anyone, you're attacking the likeness of God. So, and James also says this, you know, the cursing, praising God and cursing people, the likeness of God, and, and James 2, and how that cannot be. Um, and so the evidence of the Bible is that everyone remains the image of God, but normally in the Protestant tradition, what we say is the image of God is marred, stained, corrupted, broken, uh, fragmented, uh, under the dominion of sin, enslaved to sin. We use those kinds of language, that kind of language, rather than you lose being the image of God. Uh, and what that means, of course, is that even while we were his enemies, he died for us. Doesn't that strike you as odd? That Jesus would be so taken with the value of human beings that he would die for them. And now, my dog is in heaven. In fact, when he got to heaven, he was so perfect. Uh, when he got to heaven, they applauded and thanked him for coming. Okay? So, please don't misunderstand this if you have a dog that you loved or a cat that you love. But uh, Jesus didn't die for dogs and cats. He died for people. And it's because people, even unbelievers, are the likeness of God. They're the special royal images of God. But now, then you have these people who are who put on Christ. The New Testament says, "Who is made in the like and were made in the likeness of Him." And Romans eight, we are predestined to be conformed to His likeness. Okay, so we put Him on, who is the very image of God, and we're renewed in the likeness of God. Ephesians four, Romans eight, and so um, yeah, so we are redeemed or cleaned up, as it were, but not utterly until we're glorified. 
then we will be honored as the image of God like nobody's business. Does that help at all? Yeah, I guess the one thing I'm asking is, then how does that affect you know, one's royal role? Good. I think that what you see is that non-Christians basically, um, sometimes by God's grace, they're able to do things that are good and honorable as the image of God. We call it the common grace of God, the, the common good. Common operations of the Spirit is the normal way it's put. But, um, but also we see them corrupting, perverting that, don't we? I mean, we see turning dominion of the earth into dominion of people, for example. Okay? Murder in all of its various forms. Uh, we see it in the exploitation of the earth and the abuse of the planet and that kind of thing. So I think that we just have to say that it's a mixed bag, even with unbelievers. But we are special in that mix, called out of that. Like Israel was called out to be the special son of God among all the children of the world. I saw back here, then there. Okay, that's okay. Yes, sir. Do you uh, sense that Islam, Allah, they think they have more of a reverence we were talking about last night I think for those who are faithful in Islam, that's true. Okay, and um, the the notion of God is one that is of great transcendence, of utter transcendence, and in fact unknowability. For those that are Orthodox Muslims, um, you cannot, you really cannot know Allah. You cannot know what He's thinking or what He might do. Um, the Quran is not, not made to reveal him in that sense, is made to help you through life, but not to tell you that God has promised certain things or that you can count on him to be a certain way. Uh, the God of Islam is a capricious God. He's so far away. He's so unknowable. Uh, that is the wonder of incarnation, of course, is in the Christian faith, is that we have this utterly transcendent God who's revealed himself intimately, making himself knowable to us so that we can count on his promises. And like, for example, we come to Christ, we can have assurance that we are in Christ and will be saved. No Muslim can have assurance that he's going to, or she's going to be saved. Um, they hope they will. Ask a Muslim. If they know what they're talking about, they'll say, well, I hope I will. I hope I'll get those 19,000 virgins, but I can't count on it. And as Christians, um, we can have confidence that God has us in his hand. Was this something that was common back when Islam first started, do you think? Islam is basically grew out of a, mix, a mixing of um, tribe, Arab tribal religions and, um, and in contact with Judaism and even with Christianity. So this, it's a sort of a syncretistic faith. And so, yeah, all these things are kind of mixed up in there. Yeah. Yes? Um, you had talked about... Um uh, a kingdom of God forever on this earth, and um, I wondered what, you, what, how you incorporate the idea of human death in um, in the era before the kingdom. Great. Okay, that, just to repeat the, the issue, um, you know, speaking of the kingdom of God ultimately being in the new heavens and new earth. Um, the question is, what about human death? How does that fit in? It's the greatest tragedy of all. Now, that's the way the Bible looks at it. You, let me tell you something. You were not made to die. I'm going to turn 50 in October. Ay, ay, ay. 
Ay, caramba. You know, I'm at the end of my life. I'm still a kid, is that what you're saying? I'm, I'm at the end of my life and I just blinked. I blinked and my life is over. Well, you know what I'm saying. Don't you feel this way? I mean, my hip is hurting me so bad. I get up in the morning and my back hurts. Oh, that's right. From the, that's right. But, you know, I mean, you know, I got these sinus headaches and I'm watching myself just wither away in this world. Okay, no matter how hard I try, I can't get it up here anymore. It's always going down here. Okay, no matter how hard you try, trust me, at 50, it's very hard. Um, don't you see that true of yourself? And, you know, many times we're, so, we're told you should just age gracefully, and I guess you should be polite about it. But, but there's, something, there's something deep within us that says, I wasn't made for this. I was made to be regal forever and to rule over the world forever. That's what I was made to do. And so it gets twisted and perverted in all kinds of ways. But this is why Jesus died. And this is why when he was resurrected, he was resurrected Physically, not just spiritually, he had a new body. There's an old gospel song that said, I'll have a new body, praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. And as a child, I used to thought it said, I'll have a new body, praise the Lord, I'll have a new wife. And I can never... <laughs> and even as a child, I didn't quite get what the point was there. Okay, But as I'll have a new body, praise the Lord, I'll have a new life. That's what will happen on the blessed shore of Jordan, on the other side of Jordan, um, to use the old gospel metaphors. And so salvation, I'll just put it bluntly here, salvation is physical. And you are not completely saved, you have not completely experienced the salvation of Christ until you are remade physically to have a resurrection body like Jesus had. Won't it be great to have, you know, Joe Namath men and Raquel Welch women, as the old song used to put it, and we'll be that way forever? <laughs> like that forever? That's an old God. Well, that's from, actually, it's from a Christian. <laughs> it's from, it's a rendition of uh, Little Abner. <laughs> okay. Oh, happy days when miracles take place. You know that song? And scientists control the human race. When man assumes authority or human chromosomes, Rockwell Welch women, Joe Namath men, settle down and push button homes. Okay. Okay. And, um, well, that was the great dream of the modern period, wasn't it? That science could give us this. But we know that the reality is Jesus gives it. So don't settle for a spiritual salvation. Yearn for the adoption of sons, which the New Testament tells us is when you get your body. Read Romans 8 again. What's the adoption that we're waiting for? Our bodies. And then the earth, which yearns for us to get our bodies, is going through labor pains right now because when we get our bodies... It gets made new too. Yeah, one, two. I, I really appreciate what you're saying about the kingdom, and we live in a world in which there are competing definitions of the kingdom. And so I'm, I'm sort of wondering how you deal with issues of social construction of reality. Sort of the idea, on one hand, um, that our reality is somewhat subjective, and mm-hmm. that we have different understandings, or sort of God is given us this 
an insight into different aspects of the kingdom, but it doesn't go as far as sort of a common social notion that all of reality is socially constructed, right. and that each of our own definitions of the kingdom is the right one, and they can all sort of right. exist at the same time. And I have a second question, too, which I think... Okay. I'll try to remember that one. Okay, go ahead. That is the idea of... Two, it, it, I think we live in a culture where the Bible is not revered as much as it maybe once was. And so what other kinds of special revelation that are extra biblical do you think indicate the presence of the kingdom? Good. Um, let me say this about um, the social construction issue. And that is that basically, yes, that's obviously right, that people look at things from their angle People do, uh, in many, they're, they're, they're not passive in their assessment of the world or their, in their understanding of life, kingdom, but are active and creative about that. And that nobody should ever expect all of us to look at something as complex as the kingdom of God in precisely the same way. You should never expect that. Um, we should all expect us, as we're given different gifts and given different experiences and live in certain times and certain cultures, to have sort of different angles on this. Some will be okay and some won't be so okay. But I think we all at least intuit the, the difference between recognizing legitimate diversity among us versus arbitrary constructions of reality. Where people just say, I want to believe this, so I'm going to believe this. This is what the world is. It's just... Arbitrary. I mean, uh, it's one thing to say, that's a big car. Or that's a really good car. That's a, I like the color of that car. We can even disagree over those things. You know, is that SUV a good car or a bad car? Is it big or is it little? Is it the right color or is it not? And we'll all sort of give and take on that. There's sort of this fuzziness there that we'll all give. But if somebody walked up and said, well, that's no car. That's my mother. There was a TV show named that, wasn't it? My mother, the car. Uh, that's not a car. That's my mother. We'd all scratch our heads and say, "How is there any way that you can support that notion? And if the person just said, nah, there's no way to do it. I just want it to be my mother. Then we would all at least recognize intuitively, even if we couldn't convince the other person, we'd sort of recognize intuitively that that's arbitrary and mistaken. So I think that would be true. And so what we do is we try to orient ourselves toward the Bible's portrait of the kingdom of God, knowing we'll never get it completely right, but knowing at the same time that if we work hard and if God is merciful and gracious, we can approximate it. Okay, And recognize that we'll never all approximate it exactly in the same way. But that doesn't mean you just throw your hands up and say, ah, what are we going to do? Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow, and everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. The constructivist would say, that's a self-contradictory nursery rhyme. Because if the lamb went everywhere that Mary went, then what's it doing going to school one day? Which is the next line. It followed her to school one day, which was against the rules. Oh, there's a contradiction, you see? So you just have to say, you can say anything about Mary had a little lamb. That was not Mary, it was actually Joe. And it wasn't a little lamb, it's just Mary was huge. Okay? Well, we should all, we should all recognize there are certain things about that nursery rhyme that are kind of questionable. You know, how do you have a, a lamb that goes everywhere you go but follows her to school one day? Was it the first day of school? Has she never been to school before? And had this happened before? Uh, well, you know, we could have different perspectives on that. But I think we all sort of intuitively understand there was a little girl whose name was Mary and she had a lamb. That's the way it is with the kingdom of God. There are fuzzy edges that will all sort of go, well, you know, I'm not sure about that, I'm not sure about that. But there are certain centerpieces that are relatively clear 
and convincing and attainable. And while not all things in Scripture are like clear in themselves, that which is necessary for salvation is utterly clear in one place or another. And there's a whole lot more that's relatively clear even than that. So we're not thrown into the abyss of utter constructivism by admitting that there are fuzzy, fuzzy edges to these things. But now the other thing about um, are there any other revelations, use the word special revelation, which is a technical word in my tradition. So let me just say, are there any other ways we can see the kingdom of God? Can we say that other than just looking at the Bible? Um, I think when you look at human life through the Bible's eyes, uh, through the eyeglasses of the Bibles as best we can, it's one of the great demonstrations of the truthfulness of the Bible. And that is that it fits. The Bible tells you things that when you look out at the world that way, you, you see that there's a, there's a correlation between what the Bible says about life and what life is. And... Um, both psychologically and physically, so that when you see cultures that have adopted more or less a Christian view of life, you can see how there are there's a tendency toward justice and there's a tendency toward righteousness. And as we move away from such things, there's a less of a tendency toward that. I'm not saying that any culture has been perfect by any means, including our own. It's been utterly terrible in many respects. But um, I think we see... Um, even sort of psychologically, I've hinted a couple of times how we have these sort of um, what we might even call instincts in some circles that, that, that correlate, that resonate with what the Bible says, like this desire to multiply. It's not because of um, natural selection. Okay? It's not so that your genes might continue, like your genes have these brains that are wanting to press forward and create this magnificent gene pool for the human race. That's not it. The reason you want to have children the reason you go, oh, look at that baby. The reason you do that is because you're the image of God and you were made to multiply and fill the earth. So when you look, in my opinion, when you look at the world this way, while you can't fit everything neatly and nicely, it does uh, make a lot of sense. That's the best I could do. Yeah. How do you reconcile the concept of hell with the image of God where he has to separate himself mm-hmm. from that's great. That's a great question, you know, because sometimes people get the impression, I didn't really use this line this morning, um, that if everybody's the image of God, then we should treat everybody, we should just be nice to everybody, shouldn't we? I mean, you should never, no one should ever be punished and certainly uh, executed. You would never want to do that. You would never want to, you shouldn't, you should never have a war or anything like that. But as we unfold this reality in the Bible, what God tells us many different ways and many different times is, that being the image of God is not just a great privilege, but it's also a great responsibility. So that if one seeks to become the image of God redeemed, that's a great, wonderful blessing for you. But if you turn against God, you're his image, you're his likeness designed to go down this path. And if you turn against him, then it's not just, well, okay, whatever, you just go your own way. Since you're my image, I won't do anything to you. No, instead, this image bears an even greater responsibility, say, than the dog and cat or um, the like. And so as God unfolds his revelation in the Bible, um, we begin to understand things like hell and uh, even things, unfortunately, sadly, uh, things like just war and things like that and um, punishment of criminals who attack the image of God and things like that that in some respects don't fit neatly with what I've said up to this point, but as you bring it up, 
it fits very neatly into this notion that the image of God is wondrously responsible and not just wondrously gifted. And um, you know, a pharaoh in the ancient world was much more responsible to the gods than a peasant. Peasants didn't have to make decisions about life. They were just told what to do. The pharaoh made decisions. If he made big mistakes, the gods got him. And by analogy, the same kind of thing is true here since we're all pharaohs.